Hello, and thank you for joining us. Welcome to the Chime Opioid Action Center podcast, where we explore how healthcare technology and healthcare IT leaders are making an impact in the fight against the opioid crisis. Please welcome today's moderator. Welcome to the Chime Opioid Task Force podcast series. My name is Janet DeRoche. I'm an Associate Vice President from MadAttack. We know that impacts from the pandemic are contributing to an increased spike in mental health conditions, depression, anxiety. And we know also that we've seen increases in substance use disorder, opioid disorder, and overdoses. And in fact, there have been, according to the CDC, as of the end of June, 2020, for the 12 months preceding 83,000 overdose deaths. That's a 21% increase from the previous year and the greatest number in a 12 month period. The theme of our discussion is on stigma with opioid and substance use disorders. However, mental health and substance use disorders are similar issues with stigma that impede the path to recovery. Our speaker today is Ed Kopetsky. Ed is an experienced and highly regarded industry health IT leader. Ed, please tell us more about yourself and why this topic is of such importance to you. Well, thank you, Janet. Uh, well, I, I have to say I've been really honored by a career in healthcare my whole life and uh, helping make positive change in care for patients. Um, like many families, our family was impacted by the opioid epidemic. Uh, our son, Tim, suffered from addiction and unfortunately passed away three years ago from a accidental overdose following five successful years in recovery. Uh, following that, we founded and I co-chair the Chime Opioid Task Force in his honor to help improve our healthcare services for patients with substance use disorder. I'm committed to help change how we view addiction and mental health. So much is due to stigma that is not rooted in fact and science and certainly not prevailing evidence. Through our journey, Tim and everyone in our family experienced firsthand uh, and how experience stigma firsthand and how it adversely impacts access to needed care as well as lifelong recovery. Ed, thank you for sharing your story with us today and, and Tim's story. We hear a lot about stigma. Maybe you could tell us a little more about what, what we're referring to. Sure. Um, I think it's important to note that, uh, you know, stigma is far reaching and evasive and I think it's important to understand there's at least three categories. The first is self-stigma, which refers to negative attitudes, including internalized shame that people with mental illness and their supporting families have about their own conditions. The second major category is public stigma, which involves the negative or discriminatory attitudes that others have about mental illness. And then finally, and most evasive, is an institutional stigma, which is much more systemic and involves policies of government and private organizations that intentionally or unintentionally limit opportunities for people with mental illness. Examples include lower funding for mental illness research or fewer mental health services relative to other care. 
we can readily identify with patient stigma. But even that is multidimensional, multidimensional and multiplied by loss of control. It's further exacerbated by misguided public views and deep institutional stigma that based on uh, addiction first as a, they view addiction first as a crime and not a chronic disease. And for a great example of that, our opioid task force found a disparate array of prescription drug monitoring programs across the country. None of them are standard and almost all of them were implemented around the legal system and not the healthcare system. So we're tracking criminals and not patients. Uh, and how is that ever gonna help our situation with mental health? You raise an excellent point. These are, these are people with medical conditions similar to other medical conditions, and we need to recognize that and treat them with the same compassion and, compassion and equity. I, I, stories are so powerful. I, I wonder if, if you could elaborate further on, on what you and your family experienced relative to stigma that might enlighten others. Sure, sure. Well, Tim, as a patient, experienced multiple forms of stigma. In addition to shame from not being able to control the disease. Uh, it led to isolation, which spirals the disease forward and out of control. He questioned his own identity and how he could ever envision his future as being different and not able to live a normal life. Our family experienced it too. My wife and I uh, multiple times got perspectives and advice from even close friends that was well-intended but wasn't expert or informed. Being told we were enabling his addiction and we need to just practice tough love, that he needed to be responsible for his choices, even though it was a disease he couldn't control. And so now stigma impacted the whole family. And interestingly, Janet, last night, uh, I was talking with my wife and I said, Janet, I'm doing this stigma podcast. How did it affect you? And in without a blink of a second, she said, I felt like a bad mother. And this is what happens. Uh, I was fortunate. I took a new job during Tim's addiction and disease. And thank God my new CEO at Stanford Children's was someone who understood who had addiction in his family. And he really allowed me to talk about it and offer his own advice. Uh, just knowing I was in a safe workplace, uh, especially in a new organization with a very big role, you know, allowed me to succeed and absorb and balance the impact of all that was going on in our family uh, for, you know, went on for about 10 years. Um, my advice to anybody who has this is get expert advice, get an outside advisor, um, uh, who can give you the facts and who can see the facts. When you're under that kind of stress, um, ego creeps in and we see what we want to see and it's, it's often not real. It's, it's often counter to what the patient really needs. And so, you know, Tim got a chance and five years of successful recovery when we finally broke through, sought expert help and completely changed uh, our interaction to a long-term treatment of a chronic disease. 
Those are great insights. And, and I have to say, Ed, you've been such an inspiration and a leader on the opioid task force, the Chime Opioid Task Force. And, and it, it, I know it takes a lot of courage, but not only your personal story, but, but a lot of the information that you've shared has allowed us to be change agents. You recently shared with me a National Academies paper. It's called, for, for those that are interested, Ending Discrimination Against People with Mental and Substance Use Disorders, the Evidence for Stigma Change. Um, and and I, I received a lot from reading that paper. And I'm curious, you know, what your um, insights were relative to the concepts that were presented in that body of work. Well, that the paper was published over four years ago. So the research was years before that, but it really was profound in correlating the adverse impact of stigma and unfounded beliefs, how they formed institutional policies, low resource allocations for mental health and substance abuse, and even treatment option differentials, especially for marginalized groups. What really struck me, Janet, uh, uh, really the magnitude of institutional and structural barriers we need to change as a society if we're ever gonna make a meaningful improvement in services and outcomes in mental health. It's um, when we started in this with our son, uh, insurance didn't even cover anything. We had to fight insurance for even his detox period, but none of the needed treatment after that, including uh, medication assistance was not covered until there was healthcare reform. And even then insurance companies continue to block, block it. We had to literally fight to get benefits that were legally obligated to us. And I can't imagine all the other people who aren't in healthcare, who don't understand the system, how they have a chance. So we really got to raise awareness on this. Thank you. We learn so much these days about equity and care. And, and as I've learned more about opioid use disorder, substance use disorder, it, like other chronic diseases, it, it's not something that, that gets uh, resolved with, with a single treatment. It's, it's more like a, a chronic disease. And there was um, also a, a recent NPR piece where, as we know, visits to the hospital and the ED have significantly increased well. Uh, this, this one uh, organization with a very large emergency room talked about the increase in over, overdoses um, by 40%. And the, the emergency department wanted to make a difference. So not only were they prescribing buprenorphine in, in the emergency department, but they decided to put in an addiction specialist because they knew that patients that leave the hospital without getting some sort of referral for not only the, the medication-assisted treatment, but ongoing recovery treatment were 100 times more likely to die of an overdose within the year. Uh, and they talked about regulatory hurdles and, and referral hurdles in, in terms of getting help for, for those folks. Um, and, I, and I'm curious where you think we can reduce stigma and help caregivers provide more effective care. Well, I think, Janet, uh, stigma leads to patients not seeking care. They're ashamed or they don't feel they're, they're, they're owed. Um, and we really got to change that. And um, ERs, emergency rooms, are not designed for treating addiction. And caregivers are conflicted in their mission to do no harm. Uh, they're trained to do emergency intervention, and they don't have needed certifications to even legally dispense medications like buprenorphine. 
and established therapy and other needed treatments. Um, however, um, given the critical access nature of ERs, they present a significant opportunity to change the course of treatment and capture patients. Um, many new approaches are being implemented in ERs to provide on-the-spot access to treatment as well as disease education and options to both the patients and family members. I found it very interesting. We found a group in Southern California that established themselves in 12 EDs. And one of the big purposes was educating the support uh, for the patient because nobody really knows the space and they don't really know about the chronic nature or the fact you're gonna need long-term care and, and all these things. So presenting education about options has drastically improved enrollment in treatment. And uh, ERs are a prime place for access for patients who maybe don't have a regular doctor and they're in need for pain medication or quite often. That's a great point. That paper also talked about the advocacy and the communication and educating the community. Um, one of the other uh, factors that came out in that NPR article that, that I know you've talked to me about was that their addiction counselor in the ED was actually in recovery themselves. And oftentimes we, we hear about addiction counselors and many of them are in recovery. Why do you think this is, this is a, a factor and, and where do you see that as valuable? Well, it's, it's actually, uh, actually often a job of choice for people in recovery uh, because they're giving back and they're focusing on others. And they certainly can speak to any reality of it. You've you got to be there, you know. Uh, in fact, our son, Tim, was, uh, you know, almost a month away, only a month away from completing his degree in counseling and was going to go into that field. Um, one of the leading practices I mentioned we discovered was in that emergency department I just mentioned, EDs in, in South Carolina, and um, creating a connection for patients, even if not ready, but also interventions to help family and support, they can talk about the reality. Plus, they're a role model. Mm -hmm. they're, they're living proof that people can make it. And, you know, that's Patients with addiction need a line of hope. They, you know, really, they're, they have very little hope, especially when they've been put out and uh, kicked to the curb or can't get access to care. So it definitely helps to, to uh, especially for recruitment, but also long-term. Uh, everybody, I mean, the whole premise of AA is that you become a mentor for others and a support structure. So. Um, I think that's why it's so valuable and and, uh, and so helpful. The long-term recovery aspect of it, I know that, that that's something that you talked a lot about um, when we were preparing for this. Um, I, I wonder if you could further elaborate on how you feel stigma affects treatment op options and access. Sure. Glad to, I mean, you can kind of equate stigma and bias. It's, uh, they go hand in hand. Uh, there are numerous published findings that Blacks and Hispanics are treated differently and often prescribed higher levels of pain medications. Uh, there's also cultural barriers we're, we're well aware of that introduce both 
patient and public barriers to seeking care and staying in recovery. It is still predominantly the case that a patient with addiction is a felon. It's a felon. It's a felony to be uh, an opioid user, and yet it starts often with prescriptions by our health system and gets out of hand. Um, you know, and we know just in comparisons how racism and unconscious bias are woven into our policies and practices. Well, so is mental health and addiction. Um, because of all this institutional stigma and barriers, under and uninsured in particular have very unlimited access, if any access, to needed patient care. I think that's a, that's a great point. And um, I was listening to another one of our, our opioid task force podcasts and I was captivate, captivated by the term recovery friendly. Uh, many of us know about the American for Disabilities Act and, and the protections that that provides. And when we think about opioid use disorder and substance use disorder, um, one could think about what reasonable accommodations might be provided to those types of people. Um, and recovery friendly is a term that, that came to mind. Um, and as awareness and sensitivity to stigma improves, you wonder how caregivers, the criminal justice system, families, employers, and the addicted individual um, can become more recovery friendly, if you will. Yeah, well, Janet, we need to educate the public and change the view of mental health and addiction to a disease, not unlike cancer or heart disease. Um, we need to talk openly about the problem in our communities and our families. It needs to be accepted and regular discussion at work. We talk about people's broken legs. We talk about uh, their surgery, but we never talk about their depression or their struggles or, you know, uh, it's, it's not different. People in recovery need to be showing empathy and not afraid to be transparent. It's okay uh, having restrictions, you know? Um, I really love the concept of recovery friendly. It means we understand and care and are willing to respect others' needs. Uh, it reminds me of banning smoking in airplanes and restaurants. So we were air friendly, you know, no different. Uh, we all need to practice that behavior. In fact, you know, uh, when we see friends who aren't drinking, maybe there's a reason. And I think a lot of us aren't cognizant of that. Um, it, it really uh, um, brought it out when we announced this opioid task force and formed it. And even some of the volunteers came and told me on the side, thank you, um, I'm in recovery, or my brother passed away, or, you know, there's this stigma, we don't want to talk about it. And it it's really needs to, because we can learn from each other. These should not be unique experience. And, uh, you know, even like, I think one of the encouraging things now I'm well been made aware of is a lot of college campuses are setting aside um, recovery-free housing so that people can feel comfortable and supported in an environment where they need to be away from temptations and parties and other 
you know, things that are very high risk for them. Isn't that a, a wonderful example of true equity and care, providing people with what they need, where they need it, when they need it? And, and, and I have to say, being a member of the Chime Opioid Task Force has been one of the privileges of my life and, and hearing people's experiences and, and people have been very inspired to work on different fronts. There's so many different fronts we can work toward uh, change and, and improvement, regulatory, health IT, et cetera. I know you have a lot of thoughts and you've worked tirelessly on in this area. Um, do you have some, some final thoughts today as, as we wrap up the podcast? You've shared so much valuable information with us, Ed. Sure, thank you. I mean, as I reflect uh, through the work on the Opioid Task Force and my intentional transparency about our experience, uh, I found so many people coming forth and saying thank you. They are themselves affected, and it took courage to bring it out and share their stories, and now they're free. Um, you know, I, don't, I haven't had to talked to anybody that doesn't have a story about mental health and addiction. It, it impacts everyone, whether it's directly or your cousin. I mean, it, it's, it's in everyone's family. It does not discriminate, but its impact is super widespread. So I really hope by accelerating understanding of stigma and working to overcome it and kill it, get remove the stigma so we can talk about the facts. Uh, it'll all help us leapfrog positive, train, positive change and better treatment for those impacted. Uh, you know, I wanna just thank you, Janet, as you've shown, we can all contribute and we can all help in this much needed conquest. Uh, really, thank you for having me today. Well, Ed, thank you so much for sharing Tim's story and, and sharing your story. Um, I didn't know him, but I feel like I've, I know him. And I think he and you and your story have inspired us all to continue to do our very best to, for positive change. So I wanna thank you from the, the bottom of my heart um, and on behalf of the Chime Opioid Task Force. And I also wanna thank the listeners um, who've joined us today.